me and God doing something through me. And so I've asked Roddy to come and continue our series uh, this morning, so I'm going to turn things over to him as he comes this morning. Good morning. How are you all doing this morning? So uh, those ladies that just won, I want to let you know the good news. Uh, John has been doing a take-home course on massage and pedicures, manicures. <laughs> so just ask Tim Van Dalen. He's our youth guy. If you look at his toenails, they're always painted perfectly. John has gotten pretty good. So I'm just going to tell you that. So uh, <laughs> I have to make you laugh when I start things because it helps me feel comfortable. Uh, for me, uh, this process of coming up here and speaking to you and sharing with you is incredibly intimidating. Uh, you know, so for, I, I came from higher education and I would rather stand in front of 600 freshmen than I would 200 adults. Uh, so let's go ahead and get this started and, and start moving forward. She sat in the church service as the pastor was challenging people to make New Year's resolutions. And she started thinking, what would be a good resolution? I know. I'll resolve to take care of my body better. I'll resolve to get healthy. The date was January 4th, 2015. As she was processing this whole thing, she thought, you know, this would be great for my husband too. And maybe through my example, I can encourage him to get healthy as well. I can encourage him along in the process of taking responsibility for his life. So she approached this with great resolve. She stepped forward with the will and intent to follow through with her resolution. It wasn't within two weeks she was derailed. Her resolution to get healthy was derailed by a virus that had attacked her body. And she just felt crummy. She didn't feel good. And she said, you know, I'm just going to put this on hold right now. I'll put this resolution on hold until I start to feel better. Days turned into weeks. And her health didn't improve. I remember the flu-like symptoms that she had just didn't go away. Uh, she was sick all the time. And we were looking for answers. We were trying to figure out what was going on. She was 38 years old at the time, and I remember we had to go get bifocals. She had to go get bifocals at the age of 38. Who gets bifocals at the age of 38? If you did, I'm sorry. But the magic number's always been 40. That's what I've been told. You get bifocals when you're 40. She went in to get her bifocals and to get her prescription fixed because she couldn't see the screens. She couldn't see uh, things as she taught. She couldn't read her notes. And it was becoming more and more and more difficult. We did everything we could to find answers. I remember going to the doctors with her. And at the time, for me, I wasn't really sure what was going on. But I still had in the back of my mind, it's nothing. It's just the flu. I remember the phone call. I even remember where I was at. I was in South Carolina on Route 95, driving south to Orlando, Florida for a conference that I was supposed to go to for work. You see, I don't fly. 
Part of the reason is big things don't fit well in airplanes. <laughs> so, and if you see people getting sucked out of planes lately, that's another reason. <laughs> and I remember the phone call. I answered the phone and she says, well, they told me what's wrong. I'm like, good, what's going on? I was sitting with three other guys in the car with me. I said, what, what's going on? And she goes, they told me that I have type 2 diabetes. I'm like, type 2 diabetes? I'm like, and that, the guy from Life Goes On that does the commercials came on. Diabetes. She's got diabetes. I had made hundreds of jokes about diabetes my whole life. It's just one of those things. I'm going to go into a sugar coma. This is just what happens. I said, well, what does that mean? I don't even know. What does that mean? She said, well, the doctor assured me that if I just take this pill, I'll get better. And I'll start to feel better within a couple of days. I thought, wow, well, good. I hung up the phone. The guy said, that sounded pretty serious. I said, yeah. I said, they, I just found out that, that Amy has type 2 diabetes. And the, I remember the, one of the guys that was sitting up front, he turned around and he looked. He goes, she has type 2 diabetes. And I said, yeah. And he goes, that doesn't make sense. But I just trusted the medical community. She started taking her pill, and she started hoping that she would feel better. The weeks that the doctor promised turned into months. We went another two months, and she didn't get any better. She wasn't healing. I was watching my wife wither away. She had lost 15, 20 pounds, and if you know my wife, she doesn't have 15 or 20 pounds to lose. She was every bit of 100 pounds. And I thought in my head, I thought to myself, I'm losing my wife. I'm watching my wife die before my eyes, and there's absolutely nothing I can do to fix this problem. There's nothing I can do to change this. I, was, I became the most loyal husband you could ever imagine. I was at every doctor's appointment that she ever had. This is the woman that went to every prenatal visit she had by herself because I was detached and not involved. I went to every single doctor's appointment she had just trying to figure out what was going on. It got to the point it was so bad that she could hardly climb stairs. We, we lived in a two-story house and I would watch her go up the stairs on her hands and knees I was watching her personality change. It was kind of like the sweet wife I married turned into a drunken pirate. She was mean, and I didn't know why. The impact that it had on my children and the impact that it had on our relationship was incredible. And yet I still stood there and said, what is going on? I remember going to doctors and challenging, you've got to figure this out. Come on, this is 2015. We know this stuff. We have the medical, I've watched the million dollar man. We can make him better, all of this stuff. And they couldn't figure it out. I remember the date. It was April 20th. Uh, the reason I remember the date is that was one of the biggest days of the year for the place that I was working. <laughs> One of the biggest days in the history of where I was at. You see, we were becoming a university. I was a vice president at the school, 
And I remember going to my boss, who was the president, and I looked at him and said, listen, my wife has a doctor's appointment at 10.30. I know it's right in the middle of this big changeover, but I need to be there with her. He said, go, I understand. We walked into the endocrinologist's office. I didn't even know what an endocrinologist was. We walked into the endocrinologist's office, and he came in so smug and arrogant. I remember just sitting there looking at him, thinking, this is my wife. And he pulled out a chart, and he looked at it. And just a matter of fact, he goes, oh, I know the problem. I'm, what is it? You don't have type 2 diabetes. You have type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes? What's type 1 diabetes? And he went into this huge explanation about how my wife's body doesn't process glucose for energy and how she has a high sugar level and it will lead to mood swings. And, oh, by the way, here's a, here's a vial of insulin. Here's some needles. Take some of this. You'll be better. What? What are you talking about? Yeah, you take some of this. You'll be better. I remember we walked out of the office with some relief, but incredible unanswered questions. <laughs> that night, we sat at the kitchen table together. I sat there with Amy, and I held her. as she took her first injection of insulin three years ago. And the impact it had on our family was unbelievable. I told Kurt on Thursday that I wouldn't cry on stage. <laughs> I lied. We left the office with a mix of emotions. That night I had a mix of re emotions. Relief washed over me. <laughs> it took me to the point of the brink to ask God to fix my wife. It took me to that point of total, utter dependence to trust him and come to him before I would believe he would do anything. I reached my wit's end. This is where i got to start using the clicker. I get into things. How about you? <laughs> How about you? Have you reached a point where you were powerless in your life? Have you reached a point where you just didn't know what to do? You had no idea where to go. There was nothing you could do to find peace in a situation there was nothing you could do to make it better. Perhaps, perhaps you have a, a child who's struggling with addictions and you've done everything you can, but nothing gets better. And you throw your hands up and you trust God. I hope you do. Perhaps you have a friend that has cancer and you pray because it's all you can do because you can't fix the situation. Perhaps you have a friend who has a traumatic brain injury and you pray because there's nothing else you can do. Perhaps your business is tanking. You've tried everything you can to make it better. You've put into practice all the best business practices available, 
and yet things don't get better. What do you do? Perhaps you're at your wit's end. You've reached a point where guilt and shame have so overwhelmed you that you feel like there's nothing you can do. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter if I'm here. I am praying that through today, we can see God has great hope. And I don't, I place my hope in God's great hope. I'm not sure what brings you to that point. But I think if we were all honest, we've reached that point at one time or another in our life. For those of you who are under the age of 18, I never reached that point until I was older. And I pray that you don't have to reach the breaking point like that. But the reality is, we all will at the time. So, today, John mentioned that we were going to be continuing our passage on prayer. And uh, I would ask, I invite you to open up to Luke 18, 1 through 8. It's page uh, 851 in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. If you really don't have a Bible, take this Bible home with you. We want you to have it. We want you to have it. If you're following along in your device, that's great. It's written there too. But uh, make sure you walk out of here with a Bible if you don't own one. So let's go ahead and we're going to jump into verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared for people. Circle that. He neither feared God nor he cared for people. And there was a widow of the town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice, (laughs) grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God and don't care what people think about me, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that uh, that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Here's the key. And will not God... Bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So we have this story that's taking place. And Jesus often uses this process of what's called a parable. Now, parables are really cool. Um, I love the power of story. I think we can learn more from story than we can from many things, and I think it's an art form that's lost. Jesus was a master of the story. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus had the ability to basically cast alongside something else and in other words he could he could take a fictitious situation and apply heavenly truth to that situation and use it to teach people and it was an effective teaching method 
Really effective teaching method. A common description of a parable is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We've heard that often. We've heard that written down. A parable invites listeners to hear, to change the perspective on what seems mundane and simple. Jesus uses parables to reveal something true about God. So sometimes understanding the purpose of a parable can be difficult. It really can. So there's other parables in Scripture where the disciples, like, he'll tell them a story, and they come back to him, and they're like, what? What does that mean? And then he'd have to tell them another parable. This is a great one. So in this story, the story is written by Luke. Luke was a doctor. And so this doctor Luke, this is why we're in the book of Luke. The book is named after him. In this story, he does us a big, big favor when he starts this parable out. And he tells us the exact purpose of why it was written. So if you guys were to help me out here, what's the purpose of this parable? Verse 1. And Jesus told them a story. Go ahead. What's the purpose? That they should always pray and never give up. So we know what the story that follows after is all about. We know that the story is all about uh, praying and never giving up. I'm glad that he does that. Some of them are pretty difficult. One of the things that we do, though, as Americans, westernized people, is we have a tendency to take scripture, we open it up and we read it with our mindset. We read it with what we interpret from our society, from our culture. So I, wanted to, I want to today to kind of unpack this story for us and then draw some conclusions from it that we can apply to our life and that we can move forward with. All right? So what's happening in this story? Uh, there's some context around what Jesus is sharing with them. And that context comes from chapter 17. Now, context is just a fancy word of saying, like saying, okay, this is, what, this is why Jesus is telling them this. It's because of what he said here. In chapter 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they start asking him about the coming kingdom. And Jesus shares with them, you know, there's going to be two guys in a field, and one guy's going to be left, and one guy's going to be taken. He shares this idea that in the end times, when Jesus comes back to the world, and we believe that Jesus is going to come back, and that he's going to take back with him those who believe in Jesus Christ. He's going to take that back with him to heaven. And so when Jesus comes and that takes place, there's going to be great calamity on the earth. And he says this is going to happen eventually, but it's going to, it's going to take some time. You know, it's going to take some time. And so while you wait, while you wait for this to happen, you need to persist and you need to pray. So that's the context in which Jesus tells this, this story. But even within that context, there's a lot that we can apply to our own life. So let's talk a little bit about the players. I call them the players. This is what I picture them as. I know when we, you know, this is the, the evil, unjust judge who doesn't care about anything except himself. And then the woman in black, that's the widow. Uh, these are the people that Jesus uses to teach this story. He talks about there was a certain town, right? There's this town. That town, whether it existed or not, I don't know. Because this is a parable. Jesus is using things that the people are familiar with to teach them a story. So the people are familiar with a town, and they're familiar with the judge, and they're familiar with widows. We need to know why. 
Why does this matter? So, uh, let's, we, we jump ahead here and we look at the unjust judge. So, uh, verse 2, in a certain town, there was a judge, and this is what we, he, he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. That would not be a description that you would want of your future son-in-law, right? Oh, yes, he has a very successful job, but he doesn't fear God nor care what people want. I mean, that's pretty bad. And, uh, but that's what we're told about this guy. And <laughs> what do we know about the judge? So what do we know? He didn't fear God. So if I were to put that in my own words, um, he had no concern or, or regard for the law or the will of God. So this judge was put in place to enact the law, but he doesn't care. So he's kind of like, oh well, you get what you get. So uh, he didn't care what the people thought on top of that. So not only did he not have a concern for the law, he didn't have a concern for what anybody thought about him. So it didn't matter what people thought, he still had negative responses. Um, This description is used to describe the most wicked type of person. He's not moved by God. He's not moved by compassion for his neighbor. His wickedness is toxic. And compounded by that, he's in a position of authority. (laughs) He is referred to as unjust, dishonest, corrupt, unrighteous, no sense of justice. So what comes to mind when you think of an unjust judge? When we talk about injustice, what comes to mind? If you were to name a couple people, who come to mind? Let's see if you think of the same people I do. Unjust. Who was the most unjust person in history? Hey, Hitler. Someone said it. I thought Adolf Hitler when I thought about the most unjust person in history. So when I think of unjust, I think of this guy. This is the guy that had no cares for anybody except his own agenda. But on top of that, not only did he not have any cares about this, he had no shame. So this picture here, I know it's a little small, but this picture here is NASCAR fans. NASCAR fans have no shame, right? I mean... And what's great with this picture on Mother's Day is these guys are somebody's sons. So there's a mom somewhere that's scratching her head going, where did I go wrong? (laughs) So anyways, so uh, that's who this guy is. He is, he has no shame and he doesn't care what people think. (laughs) So what did he know? What should have he known? You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Chronicles, uh, Jehoshaphat kept his residence in Jerusalem. This is what this judge should have known. Uh, but made regular round to visit among the people uh, from Beersheba to the south mountain of Ephraim in the north, urging them to return to God, the God of their ancestors. That gets a little smaller. And he was diligent in appointing judges in the land. Each of the fortress cities had its own judge. He charged the judges. This is what he tells them. This is serious work. Do it carefully. You are not merely judging between men and women. These are God's judgments that you are passing on. Live in the fear of God, but most carefully, (laughs) for God hates dishonesty, partiality, and bribery. Okay, this guy breaks that rule. He's pretty rotten. He's like the Grinch. So we step onto this persistent widow. We have the judge, we have the persistent widow. 
And this is what we know about her. Someone had defrauded her. Um, that's why she was in court. This widow is not going to the judge with something that isn't her right. She's not going to the judge because her neighbor won't cut their grass. She's going to the judge because she was defrauded. What she was going to the judge for is something that she deserved, and she's not getting any of that. She had no one to plead her case. Women married in their teens at this time, and there's a couple things. Now think about this if you're young. Some of the women married at like 13, 14, 15 years old, that's kind of young, um, even for Lancaster County. And <laughs> they were left with no means of support. And, and what that means is if her husband had an estate, they would not be able to keep it um, when he died. That would go back to his family, all right? Um, if she decided to stay with her husband's family, they were treated in an inferior way, um, in servitude. If she decided to return back to her own family, the bride price, which her parents paid, or that were paid to her parents, uh, or dowry, that would have to be returned back to his family. So oftentimes, widows were sold into slavery. This lady has no hope. When I think about the... Uh, the, the persistent widow, I, I think of refugees. I think of people who have no hope. They, they, they have nothing. They're just taking a chance. The lonely, the destitute, the powerless, the deprived, the lowly, the unknown, the unloved. So we have this story where the widow is so persistent in coming back to the judge. And she keeps coming back and she says to him, give me, give me what is rightfully mine. Give me what is rightfully mine. Like she's hiding beside the steps and here he comes. And she's, give me what I want. No, I'm not giving it to you. He just doesn't care. It gets to the point that she wears him down to the point that he's so ready to give in that he says, fine, fine. I'll give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you want, but the only reason I'm going to give it to you it's, it's not out of my fear for God, and it's not out of my respect or fear for man. It's just leave me alone, would you? And he relents. So then we get this great verse. And the Lord said, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, Will he keep putting them off? So Jesus uses this parable. He takes the widow who gets justice from the unjust judge. And he says, if, if the unjust judge is ultimately willing and able to do what is right, how much more, how much more is our good God who has chosen, chosen, Ephesians 1, I am chosen, I am adopted, I am predestined, I am loved. How much more is that God willing to hear our cry day and night? Will he put us off? God hears our prayers and acts on our behalf. That's what I want you to take out of here today. Your prayers do not hit the ceiling. Your prayers land at the feet of a God who has chosen us before the foundation of the world, he knows. He knows. Okay, great. So why do I still struggle to pray? Why do I struggle? This is me personally. I struggle in this area. Okay, I know right now you're thinking to yourself, he's a pastor. This is like Alcoholics Anonymous right now. Hi, my name is Roddy, and I struggle to pray. 
I'm putting it out there. I struggle with this. I think in the church we have done a great disservice where we put pastors in a point where we think they're perfect. I can tell you I'm not. And I work in the office. The other guys aren't either. <laughs> so why do I struggle? This is why I struggle. I'm convinced that my resources can solve my problems. I'm convinced that what I have is enough to make change. When I was with Amy, I tried, I, I exhausted every resource I had before I gave up. Every resource I had before I turned it over to God. I'm ashamed of that. I'm convinced my strength, wit, or intellect can solve my problems. So this is, believe it or not, this is a picture of John back in college. Um, he was very strong. So I'm convinced that my strength, wit, or intellect can change my problems. I try everything in my own strength, I try everything in my own wit, and I try everything in my own intellect, which usually that runs out quicker, all right? But how many of you land in that place? How many of you try to solve all your problems using all of these available resources and you end up lost? I'm convinced my pastor or others can solve my problems. Okay, trying to find a picture of John. This is the best picture I could find. How about them apples, huh? So, I'm convinced my pastors and others can solve my problems. This is what I want to say to you. As your pastor, we care for you, we love you, we want you to experience the full grace of God. We don't know all the answers to all your problems. And there's times when God has clearly written things in his word and we don't step into those things. Do your work. We're lazy. All of us are. We're lazy in our faith. This is the first time some of us have opened the word this week. It's got to be part of your life. God gives us answers. We sit here and we pray and we're like, why isn't God answering? It's because he already has. I can tell you why your relationship's not working out. This one is really serious for me. I am convinced I am unworthy and God will not listen. That's not everybody in the room, but that's some of us. That's some of us. And what do I know about this? The book of Ephesians, which I love the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. Even when there was nothing we could do, God's grace, God's grace. It is, <laughs> it is by grace you're saved and not of yourself. So everything I do to try to solve my own problems is so outside what God's will is for my life. And it's by grace that we are saved. It's by grace we are saved. So this is what I can know. 
I know that God is certain even in my uncertainty. What does it mean for me? Even in my uncertainty, even when I was at my rock bottom with Amy, I knew that God was certain. That was hard to believe sometimes. But I had to come back that God hears our prayers and acts on our behalf. Excuse me, and acts on our behalf. God is consistent even in my inconsistency. My failure to pray, first thing, did not take God's rule and direction out of my life. That is encouraging to me to know that my faith, <laughs> to know that my salvation is secured by God and not by what I do and not by how hard I work. God hears our prayers and acts on our behalf. God is loyal, even in our unloyalty. I have been unfaithful to God. And in a lot of ways, the way that I treat God, I treat him like he's a girlfriend on the side. And he's not. He needs to be the first thing, first thing I step into in my relationship. God hears our prayers and acts on our behalf. So this is where I go with this. This is what I do. For me, when I reach a point where I don't know what to do, where I reach a point where I don't know what to say, I think of that unjust judge and I think of that persistent widow and I recognize that that persistent widow is such a reflection of me and that unjust judge is not a reflection of God. And I say to myself often, God, you are good. God, you are here. God, you hear. So this week, this week as you're facing that thing that you're praying for for 40 days, the 40-day challenge of prayer, and you're thinking to yourself, where do I go? What do I do? What do I say? I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know the words to say. God, you are good. God, you are here. And God, you hear. If you are unsure of your relationship with Jesus Christ and you're sitting in here with us today, I want to let you know that we have the answers here. We, we are able to point you in the right direction to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there would be nothing more <laughs> there'll be nothing better you could do for your mom today than to accept his free gift. So the band's going to come forward. I'm going to close this in prayer. God, dear Heavenly Father, <laughs> we know you are good. Lord, I know you are here, and I know you hear my cries. And Lord, as, as we struggle often to solve problems on our own, forgive me for trying to solve my problems for 30 seconds on my own without considering you first. Lord, we know you love us. We know that you care deeply for us, so much so that you sent your son to die for us. I'm so encouraged by that love.
And Lord, as we celebrate mothers today, 